Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us two guests, Ryan Holston and Justin Garrison. Uh, Ryan is a chaired professor at Virginia Military Institute, where he teaches political theory. His essays have appeared in Harvard Theological Review, Telos, History of Political Thought, and other quarterlies. Justin is a political scientist at Roanoke College and author of An Empire of Ideals, The Chimeric Imagination of Ronald Reagan. Our topic today is a collection of essays that they have edited, just came out. It's entitled The Historical Mind, Humanistic Renewal in a Post-Constitutional Age. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Now, in your in your introduction, we'll, we'll jump right in the introduction the two of you wrote for the volume. You go back to the Obama and George W. Bush administrations and note that they, quote, both of them, quote, often ignored constitutional and moral constraints on their abilities to pursue allegedly noble ends. What is the problem that you wanted to point out there right off the bat? I think that the problem we're trying to get at is uh, that there are constitutional limits to what the president uh, in general is supposed to be allowed to do uh, under Article 2, which have you know, over the course of the 20th century, largely been ignored. Uh, And what we're trying to get at in the book is that really there are sources of that lack of restraint um, in places like the executive office that are of a largely cultural uh, nature. And so there's the sense in which we try and get the message across that culture is essentially upstream Uh, from politics. And so when you look at what presidents have done in increasingly seizing more and more power, centralizing that in the executive office of the president, um, what that's really a a product of is the unwillingness to put chains on their own appetites. Uh, And ours, and I don't mean to point the finger at them in particular, but ours as a culture in general, um, that this is something that uh, has a very long uh, has very long roots, um, I suppose you could say. The only thing I would uh, add to what Ryan has said is part of the the reason we chose uh, Bush and Obama is they were the uh, two most recent presidents. This book was written uh, as the 2016 election uh, was being conducted. Uh, we wanted to concretely stress that what the book is trying to do doesn't neatly align with convenient ideological or partisan stereotypes, that this is a broader problem we're trying to confront this slide into post-constitutionalism, and that if Americans are interested in something other than post-constitutionalism, 
then they're going to need to start thinking and acting in ways that don't align with ideological and partisan stereotypes. If you just look at the way that the population looks at the president, I think that you can find kind of a reflection or a mirror image of the ways in which presidents think of themselves and the power that they're entitled to wield. We we tend to look at our presidents as if they're going to come along with an agenda and solve all of our problems and make everything wonderful for us. Uh, And increasingly over the course of the 20th and now 21st century, what we've seen is uh, greater and greater expectations of our presidents being followed by greater and greater disappointment. Um, and you know what we try and point out is that it's precisely because we don't recognize uh, the ultimate source of addressing a lot of these issues, which takes place uh, overwhelmingly at the cultural and moral levels. You know, it's interesting. You, you say that the higher expectations inevitably leads to greater disappointment. And I saw this in the 2008 campaign in which President Obama really was cast in in some ways as a savior figure leading up to the election and then the that inauguration was quite a quite a coronation that took place and i was thinking all the time no leader no president no matter how wise and good and firm and smart he is is going to live up to these expectations and it really was you know six months in that the dis- disappointments on the left had had already set in. And I, 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 I see the pattern, right? The pattern of uh, more and more expectation and disappointment. Uh, do, do you see any of that, any, any of that fading with, with, with the Trump campaign or with, with the expectations? I, I, I've got to think the expectations for Joe Biden are pretty low apart from beating Donald Trump. He's got a low bar to cross. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's funny, Mark. What we tried to do when we, uh, when when the book was going to press, we we started talking about what had happened since 2016 with Trump, and uh, so many dramatic changes have, have taken place since we wrote the book, as Justin was saying. Um, and we thought about perhaps trying to address this in maybe a preface uh, or part of the introduction. And then we realized that I think this really goes against the spirit of what the book is uh, trying to say, which is that uh, the lessons of historical experience uh, take years, decades, centuries, millennia even, um, to come out and therefore to try and pretend that uh, we could really see the, the meaning, the deeper significance of the Trump presidency as it's unfolding uh, would be a little bit uh, you know, full of uh, hubris of us. Uh, and, and so while I would probably expect the current trends to continue, um, I, I would hate to apply every lesson that comes out of the book to the current situation and say, uh, and, and you can see through X, Y, and Z how all of this is playing out in the Trump presidency. Uh, I think that time will ultimately tell as far as that's concerned. Let me, let me ask a question out of out of this idea of presidential power: How does a human being restrain himself when he has so many good intentions? Well, grant him that so many good intentions and so much power in his hands. What what holds him back? Why should he hold back? Well, I think that's an an important question. And what should hold him back uh, in those instances 
would include uh, fidelity to a deeper law than the passion of the moment. Uh, think about something like DACA. Uh, immigration reform is an interesting topic and there are important ways that people have thought about that, conflicting ways. Uh, the idea that the president can unilaterally issue an executive order to start making immigration policy um, is the situation in which we increasingly find ourselves uh, where, where presidents think that the, the executive order process in particular is just kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure novel. If Congress doesn't work, turn to the correct page and issue your own version of the law. That's never a good intention. That's, that's disrespect for the Constitution and its contempt for the ideas that created the United States as a functioning republic, which is that no one should be so convinced of his righteousness that he acts as if he is above the law or is immune to what some people would call original sin. The, the most important figure in this collection is Irving Babbitt. Who, who was Irving Babbitt? So Irving Babbitt was uh, an early 20th century uh, luminary professor of comparative literature at Harvard. And uh, he was in particular an expert in French literature. But his writings uh, span not just uh, those topics, but they address politics, they address morality, uh, they address history and culture and law. So uh, he, he's, uh, I guess, somewhat of a polymath. We uh, take him to be of seminal importance because Babbitt is struggling with something that I think scholars uh, are still struggling to to deal with at the the um, you know the 20th and 21st century, um, which is that we've seen a decline in traditional institutions. Uh, namely the church and its role in reigning in uh, the, the character of citizens, which to a large extent, uh, you know, for most of Western history, um, this was something that had been in place. And with the secularization that had taken place in the 19th and 20th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Babbitt has a sense that this need for self-control or self-restraint is something that is going to have to be addressed um, otherwise, that there is, if not some sort of uh, renewal of traditional institutions like the church, that we're going to have to look for sources elsewhere. And so Babbitt uh, appealing to the uh, emerging social science, the scientific spirit of the early 20th century, is basically saying, uh, trying to appeal to this kind of sensibility of looking to experience, concrete experience. And he says, uh, if you look at uh, the experience uh, of human nature, which spans back, uh, you know, all the way back in the Western world to ancient Greece, uh, the lesson that we can repeatedly distill from that experience is that uh, there's a, a higher will or a higher, uh, an inner check on the individual uh, and their appetites, which uh, if left to themselves will ultimately run wild in the, the personality. And so there's a sense in which Babbitt is trying to remember that for us or to, to remember, to recall that to memory with us. Um, and so what Babbitt's doing over and over again in his books is, 
he's talking about this inner check as the product of uh, millennia of human experience. And, you know, he talks about that not just in the Western world, but in the Eastern world as well. You see a lot of references in our book to the Confucian tradition um, and to the Buddhist tradition, uh, which echo this same lesson about self-control or self-restraint in the East uh, that you've seen, that you've heard echoed in the West uh, for centuries. So um, this is why Babbitt becomes such a seminal thinker is because when you look at what's going on today in America, uh, which we call a, a post-constitutional America because of the lack of restraint that you see among citizens and leaders, um, Babbitt actually offers uh, a response for, I don't want to call it an answer, but he, he addresses this problem in many ways. And he's saying that uh, look to the experience of the past, look at, look at the ways in which Western civilization has had to deal uh, with its crises in the past. And what happened to that inner check, because Babbitt's contention is ever since that uh, that 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 mid mid 18th century French guy uh, goes by the name of Rousseau, he, he he he's the prime figure who killed the inner check. Correct for Babbitt? Yeah, I think that's right. And one of the many things that continues to uh, impress me about Babbitt is uh, w without doing this in a way that would indicate, you know, that he had, I don't know, it's like a limited intellect or, or kind of a simplistic way of thinking. It all really does go back to Rousseau uh, in a strange way. Uh, you know, when I think about uh, different, more contemporary figures relative to Rousseau, at least people like Nietzsche and Marx, all, they all have uh, distinct contributions, uh, but postmodernism would be impossible uh, without Rousseau. Marxism would be impossible without Rousseau. What was the primary contentions of Rousseau that were so influential on everybody else? What Rousseau contends, first and foremost, is that the impulses of nature in our souls are good, and all evil comes from some source outside of the good person. He thinks, for whatever it's worth, that this is the most Christian teaching ever to be uh, uttered, including probably by Jesus himself. Um, so what Rousseau does is asserts human natural goodness and then begins to instill a way of seeing the world which locates uh, injustice as a manifestation, not of human moral failing, but some sort of malevolent conspiracy out there that needs to be annihilated so that the good impulses that we have can gush forth like a torrent. So he's the intellectual father, if you want to think about it this way, in many ways directly of the French Revolution, but he's certainly a kindred spirit of the Russian Revolution and of subsequent 20th century totalitarian movements uh, that have manifested on the right and the left. So Rousseau is essentially, uh, and this is the way Babbitt puts it in uh, the chapter in our book, it's also echoed by Klaus Rinn, uh, from whom we also have a chapter who's his foremost uh, expositor uh, who's uh, alive today. The way that they put it is uh, Rousseau changes the imagination. He has a role in changing the Western imagination uh, for the worse. And what they mean by that is uh, by doing away with the primary assumption within the Western tradition that says that human nature uh, is evil, human nature is corrupt, human nature is depraved. When you, when you do away with that starting point and you substitute in this idea that Justin mentions uh, that man is naturally good, uh, 
that brings forth, it brings with it a whole set of assumptions with regard to morality, with regard to culture, and with regard to politics. The primary goal then of all those areas is not self-control or self-restraint, but liberation. Liberation precisely from those institutions which have corrupted us. And so Rousseau's actually, he's not saying that everything is good. He, th he thinks that society is in a lot of trouble. It's the blame that he points to. It doesn't come from man. It comes from the institutions. What does that imply? It implies that human beings need to be liberated from those institutions and that natural goodness will be allowed to shine forth. We will be allowed to uh, love our fellow creature, uh, you know, all over the globe if simply we can get rid of these institutions which have been corrupting us for centuries. Really, I mean, Rousseau is giving us the mirror image of what Burke and the Christian tradition had long said, which is that uh, our, institu our historical institutions, our institutions that we inherit from the past, have been the wholesome restraint which have aided the individual in checking their appetites and keeping themselves uh, in check or under control with regard to uh, the, you know, the people that they live among. Um, that's what it means to be a civilized person for Burke, uh, is, is to rely on those supports, to rely on those, those historically derived institutions which help us to check ourselves. Does, does Babbitt regard Rousseauism as a kind of substitute religion? It's certainly something that has organized itself in history as something that amounts to a, a substitute faith. Yeah, so Rousseau uh, sees himself as at, on one level as kind of a wandering, solitary, cool guy, just being benevolent and teaching people neat things. Uh, but he also wants to organize uh, his ideas for political action. And that side of Rousseau is is very much attempting something much grander and I think in some sense much more diabolical than the mere institution of government. You, you know from uh, the very end of Rousseau's social contract, the last chapter, which is a substantive chapter, is on civil religion. It's not enough for Rousseau to have citizens who obey the law. You really have to love the regime with all your heart in a way that would be impossible if you were a Christian uh, of any kind of traditional variety, which is why Rousseau doesn't particularly like Christianity in any of its actual historical expressions. Um, you know, without uh, belaboring the point, there's a sense in which uh, what Rousseau proposes is what George Orwell satirizes in some sense in a very sad way in 1984. You know, <clears throat> Klaus Rinn's essay speaks of the allure of this kind of romantic idealism of building a better world and, and, and seeing seeing perfectibility always on the move. He speaks of it as in part fueled by the joy of superiority, by the feeling that by envisioning a better world, you show yourself a better person. And, and we can see people getting that, that, that exhilaration from the virtue signaling actions that they, how do you get people to relinquish so intoxicating a feeling? <laughs> That's an excellent question, Mark. You know, it, it actually, it kind of speaks to some things that Justin and I were, were talking about um, before we went on the air. Um, you see this in particular, this phenomenon you're talking about uh, in social media. Um, people love to be on display on Twitter and Facebook. They love to be 
condemning the latest evil in society. Uh, and, and there does seem to be attached with this a kind of self-aggrandizement. I stand with the good, I condemn the evil. And in the Western tradition, that's never really what good and evil have been about. They've been about moral struggle within the individual soul, even when no one is looking. Um, how do you get people to give that up? I, I mean, the problem is that Rousseau is, uh, we've, you know, I hate to point the finger just at Rousseau. We've sort of adopted this as kind of a, a cultural mantra. We have, uh, we have sort of adopted the idea that, um, you know, a very, very flattering picture of human nature, if I could put it that way, uh, a flattering picture, which says that we, we have the ability to do good. All we need to do is act. And so, uh, it, you know, doing good becomes about acting as opposed to not acting. It becomes, it becomes about, uh, benevolence as opposed to, uh, restraint or control. How do you get people to do that? I, I don't know that I have a great answer for it, except the answer that we try to give through a number of essays in the book, and that is, look to the past. Look at how we have tried to do this historically speaking as a society. Um, look at what, what Western institutions have traditionally tried to do, and that is, uh, as Klaus Rinn says, we try to check ourselves in our institutions as much as we do within the soul. Um, you know, this is something that I think is palpably uh, exhibited by James Madison in his design of the Constitution. Uh, we try and pit ambition after ambition uh, in an effort to check our lower nature. Once we come to realize that we have this lower nature, I mean, that's half the battle right there. And so to answer your question, I guess it's overcoming that sense in the wider culture that there isn't anything to overcome, that all we can do is act uh, in aid of others. And that's what it means to be a moral person. I think our expectations for the book would be misplaced if we thought um, publishing this would would uh, kind of initiate some sort of measurable um transformation of public consciousness. And I'm not characterizing your, your question that way, but there's a, a tendency amongst academics, particularly when you when we work as long as we do on things, to uh, to think that this is really going to make waves or, you know, someone's going to read this and it's going to be like Paul on the road to Damascus or something like this, that it's going to change. Um, but we all know how uh, widely read most scholarship is. What's the purpose then of this book in relation to your, your question? I mean, the thing that I keep thinking about in this context is something like the early... Uh, two books of Plato's Republic. Thrasymachus is essentially unreachable. Uh, and while he's not doing the virtue signaling, ro Rousseauistic romantic stuff, um, he's deeply intoxicated by something else. And it's just the allure of naked power. He doesn't make any pretensions to, to the service of humanity or something like this on his quest for domination. But there are these two other characters in the discussion, Glaucon and Adiamantus. And they say very early in the, in the text, something to Socrates, like, we want to take what you're saying seriously, but we've never heard anyone talk like this before. In other words, they're not wholly committed to the, the kind of rigid will to power that you see in a character like Thersimachus, but they've never heard anyone say anything other than this is just the way it is. And I think at least my understanding of what we're trying to accomplish with this book is, is getting that group of people who may be going along to get along uh, but have never really thought about other alternatives. You know, people who recognize that there is something kind of um, disorderly and even dehumanizing about many of the manifestations of uh, 
virtue signaling and, and other kinds of uh, Russoistically oriented political experiences. I mean, Mark, if you've met anyone who is super thrilled about being on Twitter every day, I'd, I'd like to know who this is. I mean, it seems <laughs> like it's a miserable, degrading experience for all involved. And maybe part of what we're trying to do is, is offer an explanation as to why there's more to life than that silly platform. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing I would hope that your book would do is get more people back to Babbitt. You know, I was in graduate school in English in the 1980s, and we were all immersed in, in, in critical theory and some philosophy. And, but everything, except for the few background philosophers, uh, Hegel and, and Nietzsche and Heidegger and some other, and Freud, most of it was post-1960, 1970 criticism. And I didn't go back to Babbitt, and I think I'd finished and started teaching as, as a professor by then I went, you know, reading Rousseau and Romanticism, that Babbitt's book. This was this was eye-opening to me. It was so powerful. It put things in such great historical context. It did build a, a wider historical consciousness. Consciousness. So I would I would urge all all young people, especially, to go back to some of the figures like Babbitt, these great humanists, writing uh, after the turn of the century when. The disciplines of the humanities were really taking their their modern form. Let me ask quick: What influence did Babbitt have on Russell Kirk? This is something of the topic of Bradley Berzer's essays. Uh, we have a lot of Kirk fans in our audience. How did how did Kirk come across Babbitt? I, I just wanted to mention first because I couldn't agree with you more about the need to revisit people like Babbitt. Um, as luck would have it, this year is the year in which copyright finally expired for things written in 1924. So all of Babbitt's major works, with the exception of his translation of the Buddhist holy text, the Dhammapada, are now in public domain. So if anyone wants to check Babbitt out, uh, Literature in the American College, Rousseau and Romanticism, and now Democracy and Leadership are free books. I would strongly encourage you to read them. Not only is the content good, um, it's so beautifully written. Yeah. I mean, I can't, he, he's, he's almost too good at writing in a sense. I know he would never get published today because you can understand what he's saying and three quarters of the page isn't taken up with obscure footnotes. Just, just to add something about uh, the relationship between uh, Babbitt and Kirk. Babbitt was one of Kirk's um, major sources of inspiration for his own writing. And um, one of the early uh, books of Babbitt's that I would recommend checking out in particular that Justin mentioned is Literature in the American College. And there is, uh, I think it's actually uh, a revised edition uh, that the National Humanities Institute put out uh, in the 1980s in which Kirk contributes a very lengthy introduction to that work. It was so you can see from that introduction that Kirk writes, just how inspirational Babbitt's uh, essentially extended essay, uh, it's really book length, uh, literature in the American college is. But the, the, the point of the book uh, is essentially that these lessons that we've been talking about uh, in our conversation today of the Western tradition that have to do with the restraint of the moral, person moral and cultural personality uh, to a large extent, they are passed on in a tradition of literature and in a tradition of 
uh, history and writing in general that uh, goes all the way back uh, to ancient Greece, even to the pre-Socratics, back to Homer, uh, and that uh, he's he's seeing Babbitt, I think, is seeing uh, higher education as a sort of a, a, a citadel of sorts at the time uh, for preserving and carrying on this older tradition is kind of a way of doing precisely precisely what Edmund Burke uh, was hoping we would do with the rest of our you know cultural tradition. And so, uh, you know, looking back, of course, uh, in the wake of postmodernism, as you mentioned, that notion seems almost naive to us on the one hand, because academia has become this source of assault on the older tradition. But on the other hand, I think it gives us a proper sense of what higher education should be about. Properly speaking, it should be that citadel uh, of you know, the lessons of the past, uh, of that great tradition of, of Shakespeare and Dante and, and, uh, Cicero, uh, th- these are, these are the, the, the things that we would want to impart to future generations, uh, that, you know, without these formal structures of education, we're just sort of throwing caution to the wind that they will be preserved. One last note, I think on the, the Kirk Babbitt connection is, uh, you know, when you look at Kirk's works, uh, his memoirs are the sort of imagination. Right? That's a very Babitzian uh, title to, to give the book that, that uh, Kirk wrote there. Uh, when you look at another text like The Roots of American Order, uh, it's, it's good historical research, but it's not aiming at the mere recounting of, of facts. Uh, Kirk is appealing just as much to your imagination as to your reason in a text like that, that he's inviting you to see a United States that even when that was written, would be harder to discern if all you knew was the present of the time in which it was written. And that's even more uh, the case today. That's a very Babitzian project uh, to have in one's mind. I think one of the other things that Kirk does well, particularly when you look at the entry on Babbitt uh, in uh, The Conservative Mind, is he makes it clear um, that humanism and more kind of doctrinally orthodox religious uh, affiliations are not inherently in conflict. Uh, unless you want to make them that way. But Kirk, for one, uh, saw Babbitt's humanism as something that was not uh, merely the same as traditional religious uh, expression, uh, but that it was not incompatible with or an inferior version of uh, those more kind of um, traditional commitments that a number of people who admire Kirk had and currently have. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that, you know, another sort of, if I could take another quick swipe at this, One way to put it is that Kirk is influenced by Babbitt's understanding of the imagination and the importance of the imagination uh, to individual character. You can see that in the structure of the organization of our book, actually. Um, And so it's not surprising that Kirk would have a prominent place in our book. Um, But the idea is that um, people of good character have to have their imaginations formed first and foremost. The imagination is the lens through which we see and interpret the world. Um, It's not imagination as we like to think of it, as we use it in the sort of the vernacular, um, you know, just sort of having a daydream or something. But the imagination is sort of a a conception of reality, a bringing together of all of the things in our world into a meaningful whole. Uh, and, And that's 
the idea, I think the central idea that Babbitt gives to Kirk. And so, you know, when Kirk writes The Conservative Mind, in part, I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to work on us. He's trying to work on our imaginations and he's trying to show us a different tradition as he sees it uh, in the West that uh, those various characters, John Adams and T.S. Eliot and so forth, uh, that they comprise. Uh, and so that imaginative vision of life, he thinks, is part of the route back uh, to teaching us how to restrain ourselves in this wholesome way that we've been talking about. You have to start with the imagination. You have to start with the culture. If you really want to, ch to shape people's character and to change the way that their characters have been formed. Um, you know, Plato knew this, right? This goes all the way back uh, to the Republic. And, you know, when Plato starts the Republic uh, out and he talks about his ideal city, you know, the, the main priority for him is what are the stories we're going to tell these young guardians? What are the myths that we're going to allow them to hear? Uh, and so in a sense, this is an ancient insight that Babbitt has and that Kirk is picking up on, uh, which is that, you know, you, you have to start with the imagination if you're going to shape people's character properly. Um, and so this kind of brings things full circle, I would say. You know, the, the presidents and the way that we see our presidents as embodying this sort of be-all, end-all solution to political problems, I mean, that's very short-sighted. It doesn't take seriously um, this source of the imagination of major, uh, uh, of all of the, the seismic changes and shifts and, and for that matter, the stability uh, that you have in any society uh, over and above the sort of horse race of day-to-day -day politics. The book is The Historical Mind, Humanistic Renewal in a Post-Constitutional Age. Justin Garrison and Ryan Holston, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.